Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Uh, and it is good to be with you this morning. It is not often I say this, but last week I wasn't with you, and I'm, and I'm going to admit here, and I was perfectly okay with where I was. I was, uh, I was in Israel walking the Holy Land with dear, dear friends, literally kind of standing on the pages of our Bible together, and it was, uh, it was just a sweet 10 days to get to be with friends uh, in, a, in a rich land. Uh, now, it was also interesting timing for me because as you know, we've been in our James series and, and reminder, James was uh, the leader in the Jerusalem church, in the early church. And so literally I'm kind of walking some of the grounds that James was walking uh, as, as he was leading the early church. And, uh, and so just as a reminder, man, we were, we were getting after it. And so you might think I was on vacation but look, we were just doing some boots on the ground investigative research for the book of James, okay? So, and it's something that maybe I'll propose to the elders later. We need to keep doing this, you know? I mean, it's like, I can't wait for Rome. I mean, I mean Romans, right? So anyway, um, joking aside, it was, uh, it was deeply formative as we kind of ran around uh, as we ran around Israel, uh, there was a couple things that stood out to me as I was just trying to make observations. And, and one is, my goodness, the amount of Roman ruins and palaces and, and beauty that, that, that existed in the land from north to south in Israel. And it was a picture to me of this was what the early church was seeing. This is what James was writing to a, a group of people that were, that were seeing this, this beauty, this accumulation of wealth. And, 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 and there was no doubt that there might be a pull towards it in the early church. Maybe even for James himself, he would have seen some of this and go, is this how one should spend one's life? And it was such a picture to me. And, and at the same time, there were some really humble fishing villages. There were some humble landscapes where Christ lived and walked. And as we bounced around from site to site, just one of the observations I made was, was uh, a site was most likely one of two things. It was either, uh, it was either a, a site that uh, was you know, kind of built by or lived in by a group of people or maybe a person that was using their time to build their own kingdom, or it was a location where maybe a group of people or maybe it was one person was, was spending their life was laying it down to build an entirely different kingdom that was not their own. And it was such a good picture for me. It was a strong visual. And James, knowing the hearts of men and women, knew how easy it might be for the believers, especially in that day, to be drawn away, to be lured away by the beauty of the wealth and the temptation of building your own kingdom and what that might do for you. And it's in that moment as even as I was reading this passage and knowing that, that it was coming that I couldn't help that maybe James was, was leaning in knowing that the early church had much that they might be tempted by right before their very eyes. 
Last week, uh, Rob walked through the first 12 uh, verses of James chapter four, and he talked about how we have a me problem. And when that me problem, when we drop it into the center of our relationships, it causes division and it causes quarrels. When we make other relationships about us and we want our interests alone out of them, it causes problems. And now James is gonna dive in even further going, when we make our calendars, when we make our time and our money about us, when we put ourselves in the middle of them, it causes destruction. And so read with me, we're gonna jump in with that backdrop and read the next 11 verses in the book of James, starting in James chapter four, verse 13. James writes, come now. You who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Chapter five, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter and you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And he does not resist you. Ooh, those are strong words from James. This, make no mistake, is a warning passage. And yet with much justification, right? Because James knows he's, we're not just dealing with some subtle temptation that a handful of people face in this lifetime. We are dealing with how to steward our time and money, a, not just a trivial application to this life, but this is something that all of us must learn to do with God in the center. And so this universal temptation to spend our time and money on ourselves has been a part of the fabric of our nature all the way since Genesis 3, and it's a great temptation before us today. Just like the early church had some of the, uh, this the heyday of Rome to look at as they were being dispersed across the Middle East, you and I have the heyday of North Dallas in front of us, pulling us and pulling at our hearts And all the while we're in the book of James where James has been teaching us to live single-minded, stable and undefiled lives. And today he's gonna give us a good metrics by which we consider this high call and how just might we steward our time and our money in a way that might make us single-minded, stable and undefiled. If you ever wanna know just how I'm doing at pursuing the Lord, a pretty decent place to check is one of two places, either my calendar or my checking account. Usually one of those two things, if not both, reveal a lot about what's going on in my heart. And it's sometimes literally just that simple. 
Because if you don't see God in my calendar or on, um, in my checking account, or if you don't see God in your calendar, even Shelby was talking about that, if somehow we just pile it in and don't make room for what he's up to, or if you don't see God governing how you steward your finances, it can be that simple that, that your life is not that single-minded, stable, and undefiled, but yet it is ruled from a double-minded perspective to say it a different way, maybe kind of in light of the different sites of Israel, most of us in here are kind of in one or two places. The first being uh, we are stewarding our time to build our own wealthy kingdoms, or by the grace of God, some of us are stewarding our time by laying down our life to build a kingdom that is um, not our own. And so James knew that this was a key topic for the early church. And if the early church could get this right, if they could get God in the center of both their time and their money, it might just change the world through Christ. And so it's true for us here at City Bridge that if we can get this subject right, if we can understand just where God belongs, smack dab in the middle, then maybe we too can change our city and have more stories like we just got to hear. And so it's why I'm excited. I get to dig in deeper with you all. We get to let the book of James, we get to let these 11 verses begin to convict us, begin to grow us, begin to sharpen us. Really, we just got two movements this morning and, it, and it's all, and it's easy. As you kind of look at verse 13, as you look at verse one of chapter five, James is going to start each section with, come now you. And so he's gonna put two sins on display that he wants the early church looking at, and it will be really instructive for us to look at it as well. And those two sins are the sin of presumption in James chapter four at the end, where we begin to find our security in our own plans. And then in James five, the first six verses, we're gonna see the sin of self-indulgence, where we begin to find our security in our wealth. And so we've got much to get at this morning. So dive in with me as we jump into the sin of presumption where we begin to find security in our own plans. Let's go back to verse 13 and begin to work through the verses one at a time here. James writes, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, a couple of observations up front that I think will help us kind of really focus in on where James is really taking us in this passage. And the first is this, when it says, come now you, who is the you that James is referring to? Most likely, James is kind of using an example of, of a uh, trading merchant that would move from town to town, and, and he was using them. That person most likely might be a little bit richer than the average person that James is writing to here in the early church. But really, this traveling merchant of the day was, is just an example that James is putting before us so that we can begin to evaluate what we are doing that might be similar to this person. And then let me also address what James is not saying is sin here. At no point in this passage is James saying that planning is a sin. Planning in and of itself is not a sin. Secondly, James is not even saying that profit-making is a sin. In and of itself, by itself, that is, 
it's neutral. It's not a sin. Now it becomes one when, as Christ said, that for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul at that point, if you're willing to sell your soul in order to make profits, that's where you begin to get in it. But James is not speaking against planning and profits. What James is speaking about is a sin of omission. What the traveling merchant was doing and what sometimes you and I do, it's about what we did not consider. It's about what the traveling merchant was not considering, which was his complete utter dependence upon God. Proverbs 13.10 says, through overconfidence comes nothing but strife. Some, Some translations say through presumption comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Look at what the merchant was doing. He presumes to be in complete control of his life. He, 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 he presumes the time, it's gonna to be today or tomorrow. He presumes the location, it'll be in such and such city. He, pre, he, he presumes the, uh, the duration, I'll be there for a year. He presumes the profits, oh, I will make a profit. He even presumes on his own ability to do work. And by omitting God from his plans, basically he is presuming to be God himself in complete control of what tomorrow brings and all of its variables. And he finds his security not in God, but in his own plans. And that is always sin. The sin of presumption where we omit God from our plans and our complete dependence upon God is thrown out the window. That is sin. There's a similar passage in Luke 12 that I just wanna to run to real quick because it, 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 it's gonna be clear that presumption is sin. Read this with me. This is Jesus speaking through a parable. In verse 16, it says, and Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, listen to his words. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to send my crops. And he said, listen to the presumption. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. God is not a part of any of these plans. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And yet, but God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? A lot of times we think we're the masters of our own universe here. And yet we don't know what even tomorrow brings. It's interesting about Luke 12. It's the only instance, and you can test me on this, but it's the only instance where God looks at one specific individual and says, you fool. He calls a group of people fools. He talks a lot about foolish behavior. But in this instance, the person that is presuming, that is omitting him, that omitting God from their plans, God looks at that and says, that is a fool. Now, we can look at this, both the, the Luke 12 example, or maybe even the, the, the James 4 example and go, I, I don't, that's not me. I'm not a traveling merchant. I'm not this rich man that has a, a plentiful land. But let me just bring this maybe for our level. That could be your story or maybe a couple of these might resonate with you differently because I believe we are all guilty of this from time to time. And some of us way more often than others where we begin to carve God out of our lives in such a way um, that we have fallen prey to the sin of presumption. And it can be subtle sometimes. The first is we think we can control the outcome of our kids, right parents? 
If we can just be godly parents, if we can be godly parents, then, then they will be who we want them to be. If I'll do that 30 minute devotional each and every dinner table night, I've got the next Billy Graham on my hands. We just think if I can do this, if I can do that, if I can just get them to, and we lose our complete utter dependence upon God to change our kids' hearts. And we run around trying to do a lot of different things. And look, parent, absolutely raise up your child in the way that they should go. But when we do all of those things ahead of just being on our knees in utter dependence, begging for the Lord to change our child's heart, we presume that we are in control. And we forget that it's the Lord that changes hearts and molds them into who he wants them to be. We presume we know what our finances are gonna do from year to year. Think about that for the last year or two. I've heard about meme stocks and cryptocurrency and we're, we're what, 20, 25% down in the stock market this year. And all of a sudden that presumption doesn't feel quite as secure anymore. All those, hey, in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years, your 401k is gonna look like this. We presume to know where we're gonna be financially 30 years out as if we have control over our earning power each and every year. And yet we look up today and it's a lot more uncertain, isn't it? We got interest rates rising, inflation's all over the place, gas prices this and any number of other things. And we just kind of go, what's going on? And maybe... It might be a little gift from the Lord to, to humble ourselves in some ways. For when we presume upon tomorrow, we begin to lose our gratitude for what the Lord's already supplied. And we can grow in this area. Three, some of this, sometimes we presume we put off our obedience until tomorrow. Have you ever been guilty of that? Sometimes we presume that it, it, tomorrow's gonna be the day that I change. Tomorrow is going to be the day that I change that behavior or I repent or I engage with that neighbor. It's gonna be tomorrow that I do it. And we presume that we'll even have that tomorrow. And it's such a reminder that tomorrow is the devil's day. Tomorrow is the devil's day. The devil is fine with anything that you talk about doing tomorrow because he knows that every time you kick the can down the road and you punt it to the next day that the heart grows colder. And any bout of obedience that you know what you ought to do today and you don't is delayed. Disobedience is disobedience and it is sin. And the colder our hearts grow, the more defiling our affections become, the more double-minded we become. And before long, we're finding ourselves way off course because we think we're in control. We've put ourselves in the center going, I'll even know when I can get myself right with God, it'll be tomorrow. These are just some of the things that we can fall guilty, fall prey to. And James is gonna look up here and say, look, there's two paths. Read path one with me, verse 15. It says, no, instead of doing these things, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that that we begin to entrust our lives and our wills and our calendars to God. We say, I'm, just, I'm tired of trying to control it myself, Lord. You do with me what, what you would have me do. Almost every day, one of the tangible things I try to do every day about midday, usually sometimes a little bit on the end of my lunch break is to take about a 15 or 20 minute walk. And sometimes some of you have seen me kind of campusing the, around our building, right? And I've got my AirPods in and maybe it looks like I'm listening to music or talking to someone on the phone. I'm not doing either of those things. 
I just put my AirPods in so you don't think I'm crazy. <laughs> what I'm doing with, what I'm doing is trying to listen to what the Lord would have for me. And then I'm just praying, Lord, will you, will you even reorient my heart? I'm midway through the day. And, and here's an area where I felt myself trying to put myself in. I was trying to control. I was presuming that I was someone else's hero that Shelby was even talking about today. And I've presumed, Lord, will you help me reorient my heart? It's like a little midday check-in for me. The other path is not a good one. Verse 16 says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. I told you this boasting, this, this sin of presumption, it, in some ways it's subtle. In some ways it almost begins in a way that the world kind of encourages you, right? It's like, oh man, that guy's got life by the tail. That gal really knows what she's up to. She's got everything not locked and ordered. She's really put together. He's got it all figured out. And it starts in a way that sometimes man encourages and celebrates. And yet really what happened is we've put ourselves in the middle and we've orchestrated all the things that we're gonna do and how we're gonna do it. And this sin that maybe starts subtly sometimes begins to grow into a habit. And before long, we're, we're almost delighting in it. And then it's not long that we glory in it and we boast about it in our arrogance of all that we're doing and how we're doing it. And I wills and I haves as opposed to understanding how we get, and James just calls it for what it is. That type of boasting is evil, it's arrogant. And we glory in the wrong things. Presumption is a dangerous sin for it grows into controlling behaviors where we begin to find security, not in the person of Christ, but in the plans of man. And so what can we do? What do we do? I just, I, I run three things through my head as, as consistently as I can. The first is to humbly acknowledge that the 24 hours we have each day are not ours to spend as we choose. Those 24 hours that I've been entrusted with today, they are not mine to spend how I want them to. I am to offer them up for the Lord and just go, Lord, how would you want me to spend this time? You guide my heart through this. The second is, is, is we do what James talked about in verse 14. We remind ourselves we are but a mist. We are a vapor. We're a breath. We're a flower quickly fading. And like the psalmist says in Psalm 90 verse 12, we need to pray consistently. Lord, teach us to number our days so that we might have a heart of wisdom. Do that second. And then the third is we need to make our business the Lord's business. What does the Lord want us to do? He's made that really clear, even in the book of James, right? We are to be and make disciples. We are to love God and love others. This has been on display from when Christ was sharing, right? As he was ascending all the way now to James, talking about it consistently in James chapter two. It is the royal law of scripture. We love God and we love others. That's our business. That's our job description. And so church, our time is short and we don't need to make it any shorter by spending it upon ourselves. We use our time to glorify God. Now to help me, um, do some of these things, just a practical thing that I've done, and it's gonna sound a little weird, and I'm okay with that. But um, I've written what I'll call just my own ending. You might call it an obituary, but I consider my end. Scripture tells us not to worry about tomorrow. Scripture says to not presume about tomorrow, but scripture often says consider tomorrow. 
In fact, it's one of the themes you see highlighted over and over again in James is this idea that a day is coming when we will stand before the Lord and I want myself ready for that day. And so I've written, I've written about who I once was and who I want to be. And I'm just gonna read snippets from it. And, uh, and to be really clear, I am not this yet, but I use it as a reminder to go, this is who I wanna be. And, uh, and I'm gonna read it, and I'm gonna read it, I guess, in the third person, but I just, I'm not that guy, okay? I'm not gonna use third person just in my normal vernacular, but as I'm writing out my ending, I've, I've used third person. It said, Christ rescued Jeff by grace through faith when he was 13, but, but Jeff would find difficulty fully surrendering to God's ways for the next 20 years. In one notorious season of his life, Jeff, in his love for money, willfully wandered into gambling and stealing from his best friend. The sin was great. But Christ's grace proved greater. And on January 19, 2015, Jeff stepped down as king of his own life to allow Christ that position once and for all. Not there yet. But the thief became a servant and the liar became a teacher of truth. The deceiver became a shepherd, the weak one became steadfast, and he who once caved in the face of sin learned to stand strong against temptation. And his wife and children would be the first to attest to this in his life. There's more, but that'll do for now. I'm not there yet, I wanna be. And so I remember who I was and then I remember where I'm going so that I can decide how I'm supposed to live today. Because look, today is hard. There are lots going on and life gets hard. Multiple things come at you and there's always a strong temptation either to begin to coast or to maybe pull the ripcord all together and eject and run back to old ways. And so we stay humble, surrendering to God's will. This is just my way. I don't know what's your way, find your way. If it's writing an obituary like me, go do it. But what is your way for staying humble and for staying on mission and on course? Verse 17 says, as James ends this part of scripture, it says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Doesn't that sound familiar to some of the other verses we've heard? It goes all the way back to James 1, that if we are a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word, we are deceiving ourselves. It's right there again, just in a little bit of different vernacular. Whoever knows the right thing to do, whoever's heard the right thing, whoever's read the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. James, a constant theme reminding us that we are to be doers of this word. And so when we presume that we are the ones in control, even though we know that it's God that's in control, it's sin when we know that it's God that offers us security and yet our lives and our calendars look like we're the ones that are trying to produce security for us and others, it is sin and it is presumption because we've omitted God from our lives in a way that sometimes is really subtle, but it is destructive. And so great is our need to repent a gracious warning in verse 17 from James. And from our calendars, from our time, from our sin of presumption, James is gonna dig in deeper and he's gonna move next to our checking accounts. He's gonna talk about the sin of indulgence and how we find security in our wealth. James is gonna move from a traveling merchant and now he's gonna move to a rich landowner. 
and I have read multiple commentaries just to set up James 5. There are lots of people that it's like, is he writing to rich non-believers? Is he, is he writing to, to, to rich worldly believers? Let me just save all of us time on that. We all have something to learn here. And you may be wondering, what, what, I mean, he's gonna call out the rich. Am I, am I one of the rich that James is talking about? Well, good news, there's a website. There's a website for everything. <laughs> but literally, you can go to howrichami.org. There you go. Get this, you punch in that you make $40,000 a year, household of four, that site's gonna tell you you're in the top 14%. If you make 80,000 a year, household of four, it's gonna tell you you're in the top 5% of rich people in the world. Likely, if you walked through the doors, you slept with AC humming all night long, covered with shelter above you, you are rich by global standards. Now I say that knowing that there's some here in this room that life's hard, life's tough, the budget's not adding up right now. But for many of us, this passage as James leads in, this is a good passage for us to lean into as well. Our hearts might want to reject it, but this is a great time to open up our ears. Verse one, chapter five, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James has been fond all letter long of strong attention grabbing language, but he even ramps it up here, a little Old Testament prophetic style. You can see language like this in even Isaiah 13, six, which Isaiah writes, wail, wail for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the almighty, it will come. We should be on our knees, humble. In fact, James is sometimes referred to as the Amos of the New Testament. As you begin to read James again this week, sprinkle in a little Amos, you'll see some themes, some recurring things in Amos 4 and Amos 6 and Amos, Amos chapter 8, because I'm telling you, this sin of wealth and self-indulgent living, it's not new to us. It was prevalent in Amos's day, it was prevalent in James's day, and it is prevalent in ours. The world has always thought that none have more reason to rejoice than the rich. And yet this book over and over and over again warns that group of people. First Timothy 6, 8, a passage that some of us are quite familiar with. It says this, but Paul writing, but if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, not wealth, but the love of it, is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What are some of those many pangs? What are some of those that Paul references? Well, it seems like James almost picks up those things and he levels a few different accusations here at the rich. We're gonna look at three of them specifically. The first is that a love of wealth can lead to hoarding, it can lead to excessive wealth. Verse two, it says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, when I say the word hoarding, I don't want you to think about that TV show that seems to like highlight a couple of crazy people. 
James is simply talking about excessive wealth, about holding on to God-given excess, even though there's God-given needs around us, because why? Rarely is our appetite for money ever satisfied. Whether consciously or subconsciously, we equate money with security. We love the cushion that having a little extra padding in our bank account or our retirement account gives us. It insulates us from different problems and it makes us less dependent on God. And we've removed our need for God and we've inserted our need for wealth and what we want and how we want to live. And James tells us to be careful. I think when many of us stand before the Lord as James keeps reminding us it's coming, I think we will have wanted less to have steward than we had. I think when we stand before the Lord, we will have wished we had less. Even though we worked all of our days to get as much as we could, we will stand before the Lord wishing we had less because our wealth, our our hoarded wealth, will give evidence to some of our poor stewardship and our unfaithful stewardship of it. That's what James is talking about. It's It's gonna be evidence against you, James says, because it's been wasted in many ways. And so what, just for a second, what are the things right now in your life that might testify against you? Do you have anything in your garage, in your attic, the top of your bedroom closet that is just excess, not doing anyone any good? How much money do you have sitting around unused? Maybe it's undeployed in a brokerage account. Maybe it's stored up for a thousand rainy days. How many shirts, pants, dresses, whatever it is, you got clogging up your walk-in closet. I'm just telling you, there's so much here. What is it for you? And how can you begin to live in a way that begins to trust God that you don't need excess for the thousand of rainy days? Because look, everything you ever buy will end up in the trash. Everything you ever build will one day be raised to the ground. It may not be in your lifetime, Every Apple product you buy will be obsolete tomorrow. This is like one of their rules. Bank accounts all zero out at the grave. And so he or she is no fool who gives away now what she cannot keep for later. But I'm gonna tell you, there is one thing that if you have it, it will never corrode. It will never be trashed. It will never be raised to the ground. Let's go back to Isaiah. Says this, he's gonna use similar language to start off. It says, for the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool, but here's what will last. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. What rich, what that is rich will last? Answer, the gift of salvation. Salvation will never corrode. And so if you're in here today and you yet haven't yet trusted in who Christ is, I just wanna tell you, there is a richness in following Christ. There is a rich gift that he offers that is, surpasses any other riches you could try to acquire for yourself. And all that you do to get this riches is you lay down your filthy rags. You lay down that which isn't worth anything, that which speaks evidence against you. You lay down your sin and your brokenness. And in this great trade, God clothes you in his son's righteousness and it is a great gift, a rich gift 
that surpasses all other riches you might even come close to attaining here. Don't miss that gift in all your effort, in all your trying to put yourself in the center. Don't miss out on the gift that God wants to offer. And this gift will never corrode. Salvation is this gift that can, if you will continue walking with the Lord, it gets sweeter with time. Your sanctification will only to continue to enrich you. And then even one day, that salvation will end in glorification where we will one day get to see just how much we have. The gospel riddle is this, is that we save our lives by losing it. We gain by giving. We bring in by sending out. And so I'd encourage you to look after the happiness that will last for your entire life, eternity included, and not just this worldly one. James says, watch out, watch out for hoarding. The love of wealth might do that. Second, he's going to begin and going, hey, the love of wealth can lead to oppression of others. It says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Again, strong words. And you go, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Sin will take you farther than you ever expected it could go. And the love of wealth will lead you to places that you never thought. You think this guy, you think this land, rich landowner is crazy. And yet it's very easy. You hold on to what you have. It's not long before you begin to dip into what other people have. Maybe if there's anyone that knows that, it might just be me here. And so learn to dispense of your wealth before it grabs a hold of this heart before you begin to move towards other people in a way that does not fulfill the royal law of scripture. Now in this place, let me just stop for a second and just give you a couple of reasons why I love being around here so much. I'm, I'm, I'm spurred on, I'm encouraged because we have what I guess you could call, or maybe some rich landowners. We have some, some generous entrepreneurs here that lead their businesses, they lead their families, they lead this church in a way that is, is, is so encouraging to many. They, they, they use their position of authority and they, with God in the center, they begin to love people in a unique way. And look, I'll just tell you, when you love God and love others, a lot of times it's not financially profitable here and now. But I get to watch those guys make financial decisions that becomes a blessing for the ones that they get to walk with. And it is a deep encouragement to, to see their medical bills that get paid. They take their God-given excess and they meet, in some instances, God-given needs that others have so that the, in the pairing of it, God's name gets glorified. And as they fulfill the royal law of scripture and how they love other people, God gets the glory. We also say here, and it's one of the things why I'm encouraged is that if you are a member, uh, you will never go without food, clothing, or shelter. That's one of the things that we, that we promise. If you'll walk with us and we'll walk, and as we walk with you, that's, what, that's one of our promises. And that's not because as a church, we're just stroking checks every time there's a need. It's because that there's faithful community groups that when a need arises right in their small group of people, they surround those people in a way that's really encouraging. And we get to watch this all the time. And even in the last month, there's been a ton on display. We've had, we've had deaths in our body. We've had sickness. We've had aging parents. And those things have produced a variety of needs. And we've watched the church come around those individuals. And I just want to say, way to go, church. Keep going in this area. 
maybe a tangible application for you and your community group is if you look around and go, hey, there's no needs in my group. We get emails all the time and it is such a gift to our body is when other community groups go, hey, right now we don't have needs. We don't have any needs, but we have some excess. And so elders, church leaders, if you know of a need, will you help let us match our excess with their needs so that God can get the glory? And community groups do that all the time. Maybe a great place for y'all to talk today about how you can step in and not be ones that oppress, but ones that are blessing other people. And then the third thing is that our self-indulgence will lead to self-indulgent luxury. Verse five, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Look, culture celebrates self-indulgent luxury. It celebrates it but scripture condemns it. Circle with me, look at the four you have. You can circle them with me, underline them, star them, put it in red pen, whatever you want. But it says, look, at the end of verse three, it says, you have laid up treasure in the last days, these days. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. Listen, friends, luxury and self-indulgence, they're not goals to be attained they are warnings to be heeded. We don't strive for luxury and self-indulgence. We are heedful of that type of living, knowing that our heart is rarely more dull when our flesh is weighed down with luxurious excess. Pleasure must have pleasure to refresh. I've seen it time and time again, and we need help in this area. I'm telling you, friends. And our community groups, they can be a help in this area. My wife and I have taken great comfort that when we make a big financial decision, if whether we're buying a house or a car or some other thing, it's such a gift that there's others in our community group that have sets of eyes on that decision with us. And some people hear that and you're like, that's crazy. Talking about finances is taboo, off limits conversation. That is crazy. And what I think is crazy is that with all the warnings that there are in scripture, that when we know that we are called to steward all that God has entrusted with us, because it's his stuff, it's his money, that with all the warnings that we have, that we are willing to stand before the Lord by ourselves in isolation going, how did I do? That's crazy. It has been such a gift for me and my family that over the last 20 years that each week or each, uh, once a year, we, we've just had our budget reviewed, looked at, just going, is there anything in here that maybe we can grow in? Maybe we can save some money. Maybe is there any luxurious excess in here? Help us. And so community group, people in community groups, invite this conversation in. I know it sounds crazy. It's countercultural. Yes, it's what believers do. We are countercultural. And we know that we are standing before a Lord giving an account for our stewardship. I want help. And I think you do too deep down. Invite the conversation and we don't do this enough. To many of you, or at least to some of you, I just, as I close, I just, I know there's, there's, a, there's a lot of faithfulness in this room. A lot of people that are stewarding their calendars and their checking accounts in really encouraging ways. Stay tuned for next week. There's gonna be some really good words of encouragement about what's coming that will help you hold fast and stand firm, steadfast like James calls us to throughout the letter. Hold on. 
And yet for some of you there, maybe you kind of look up and you're like, hey, this is, whether it's sin of presumption, sin of self-indulgence, a little bit of both, and we've all got some in us. I just want to end with a, just a little bit of a gracious callback. As we finished in Israel literally 48 hours ago, I think it was, it's been a little bit of a whirlwind, but I, we sat in the courtyard of Caiaphas. And literally from there, you can see some of the, the, the world's wealth that there was to, ex you're just literally on the Southwest side of the Temple Mount and, and all that man has done in, in building extravagance. And in that courtyard, if you remember, this is where Peter denied the Lord three times. Many of which we're guilty of too. Maybe it's in a different way. Maybe it wasn't with a, to a servant girl, but maybe it's with how we spend our time, how we spend our money. We've denied that God's the Lord of our heart. And we sat there in that courtyard as we were about to depart Israel and we just celebrated that, that Peter's story didn't end there. Peter's story didn't end in that courtyard. And so I don't know where you are today, but I just wanna tell you your story doesn't have to end right here, right now. You can still offer time. You still have time while there's breath in your lungs, you still have time to begin to live in a different way. The path of repentance is before you. And so don't presume that it will be there tomorrow. Respond today in a way that tells you you're ready for God to be right smack dab in the middle. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.